With a 50% obesity rate in the U.S. and more unhealthy people than ever before, it is time to make America healthy. Welcome to Make America Healthy with Beth Shaw. If you're feeling tired, toxic, heavy, slow, or stressed, then keep listening. Beth and her expert guests are here to offer practical advice and share the tools you need to reclaim your physical, mental, and emotional health. Now, here is your host, Beth Shaw. Hey, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Make America Healthy. And as we near the close of the month of May, which is Mental Health Awareness Month, we have uh, such a mental health crisis right now happening worldwide that we thought it would be great to bring back a mental health expert that we had on last week. Um, Dr. Martha Koo joins us from neurowellness.com. They have ketamine clinics. They do TMS magnet therapy and a whole host of other natural and sometimes unnatural uh, mental health cures. So today we're going to unpack more of the natural mental health cures and solutions. And we will talk about yoga. Obviously, I'm a huge fan. I think everyone should be doing yoga, meditation, mindfulness practices, which we'll get into as well, because there are many therapeutic techniques that have uh, acronyms like CBT and DBT that are actually just based on mindfulness, uh, pausing and stopping yourself in the stillness before acting or reacting, which as a mental health strategy and coping skill can be a very, very good one. And I'm just sharing from personal experience as a highly reactive person that uh, pressing the pause button always is helpful. So Dr. Ku, welcome back to Make America Healthy. Thank you so much, Beth. Very delighted to be here. So we've uh, we've had a couple of repeat guests during the time that we've had the show. Uh, Dr. Nick Paracone, Dr. Barry Sears, Dr. Edward Group. Uh, so you're lucky number seven. <laughs> well, really number four. But in any event, welcome back to the show. And uh, one of the reasons why I have to say I'm fascinated with you is that I, as a friend who has you know, many mental health and uh, physical health practitioners in my life and around me, lots of friends that are doctors, Western medicine. Um, I don't often see someone from the Western medical model really embracing some of the uh, more out there techniques, let's just say that, that you have not only embraced, but been able to monetize. And so you know, I'm very curious as to your experience with natural mental health cures and solutions, and then where you see the intersection is with both pharmaceuticals, psychedelics, and all the other. Yeah, great, great question and introduction. I, I think my approach uh, being more um, uh, all rounded and holistic and and complementary probably comes a little bit from my background, right? I was a big dancer growing up, and a and that was a very healthy space for me. Uh, the movement, the music. Um, I went to medical school. I was very interested in and obviously medicine and helping people. And then I I did my psychoanalytic training right after my residency. And I think the psychoanalytic training added an entirely different perspective in the sense of our capacity to heal within, right? Sort of looking deep within for healing rather than external um, fixes. And I think both of those experiences have really guided my, my medical practice. So yes, I am a psychiatrist. I do own a company where we do offer medication management, but the the, the bigger impetus and push has been really a more uh, holistic approach. And I think this is where the, the TMS comes in as really a process where people, you know, aren't putting anything inside their body. They're just 
tuning up uh, neurons in a way that they can function at their full capacity as they had at one time before any mental health struggles. Um, and I think that those those are a really important additive services. Same thing with like photobiomodulation, which can do the same thing. Um, and in the sense of really restoring and giving people that strong message of, of really doing deep inner work and healing. And sometimes we all need a little extra support to get there. Um, I think I've given Bethy this analogy before, but it's sort of like when somebody gets a cut and they go and they get the stitches and the stitches have really helped, right? The wound heal, but the body has really healed itself with just a little of the, the added support. Um, Wonderful. I have a lot of questions about uh, if some of us are, are born with more compromised brains than others, but I'm going to actually pause because we are joined by uh, two more amazing guests today. And uh, we are joined today by Sensei Chodo Robert Campbell and Sensei Koshin Paley Ellison. Now, about two weeks ago, a book showed up at my doorstep and it's, it was called Untangled, Walking the Eightfold Path to Clarity, Courage, and Compassion. And I thought, oh, I wonder who sent me this book. And I put it in my big stack of books that I had not gotten to. And I picked it up on uh, Saturday night when I got home from a trip and had made another resolution to myself to read more of the books in that pile. And I must say this book is really awesome. So um, the author, Koshin Paley Ellison, is one of our guests today. Untangled is the book. Uh, Koshin, I don't know how to refer to you, uh, but but I did wear my monkish outfit uh, today. Uh, welcome to Make America Healthy. Hi. You can call me Koshin. It's just fine. Okay. Great. Um, so this book is is really fabulous, and I related to so much of it, but. I think, you know, you're the first monks we've had on the show. So if you could tell our listeners a little bit about uh, your lineage, your practice, and uh, how you got to be a monk, we'd love to know. <laughs> so we're part of what's called the Soto Zen lineage, which is just one. It's thought to be called farmer zen so accessible to everybody so it's you know it was the zen that was available to people in japan the local folks where it used to be more elite practice and so i i've always enjoyed that that this is we're practicing something that anyone could benefit from from feeling grounded from feeling soft from feeling open and feeling clear and where our ethics and what our values and what we are actually doing and saying match up, which is so, a journey. That's really beautiful. Um, you know, I, I read. I, I'm halfway through your book, so I, I understand you were not born a monk. Um, tell us a little <laughs> bit about your progression, and or maybe you were. You know, you, your soul chose it in this lifetime, and and I respect that. But tell us your your path to, to from normal life to uh, becoming a monk, and then we'll dive into some of your mental health uh, practices and strategies. So, you know, so when I was eight years old, I was visiting my grandfather and went to his house, and we were looking through a National Geographic magazine, and there was a a spread on Tokyo. And I remember turning the page and seeing this picture of this monk with the Ariragasa hat, which is this large bamboo hat. And you could just see his a little faint smile. And I just remember feeling transfixed by this image and just like really drawn in. And all the people around him were blurred. And and as I do share in the book, that he was experiencing enormous. Uh, upheaval in my life at that time, you know, sexual abuse and physical abuse and um, all kinds of challenges that were so painful. And that this photograph seemed like a picture of a new road and that you could be still in the midst of chaos, that you could be content in the midst of things. 
And I remember reading the caption below the photograph that said Zen Buddhist monk. And I remember going home and telling my mother, I want to grow up to be a Zen Buddhist monk. And I thought, it turns out I did. <laughs> well, um, it's so great that that gave you hope, not only hope and inspiration, but also a life path. Um, I'm sure that was meant to be. When I was six years old, I taught myself to do guided meditation mm. and imagery because I suffered from horrible migraine headaches. I wrote this in my book, Healing Trauma with Yoga. And, you know, my my family, they were pretty checked out. So um, I taught myself how to do guided imagery. And I, I had no idea what it was, but, you know, who would think I'd be in the mind-body wellness industry, you know, many years later? <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. What about you? Me, Toto. Um, yes. I can give you the the flowery version. I can give you the, the real version if you like. I think we would love. We our listeners love a real down and dirty story. The, the real. Oh, this is real yeah. down and dirty. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so up until I was thirty five, actually, I was a drunk and an addict, and um, I met. Uh, my teacher, who's my teacher, still my teacher, she's 94 years of age now, but I met her when she was 62, I guess. And uh, Where did you meet? Out on Long Island. I was in a psychoanalytic training institute, and every week leaving my supervisor, I would see this woman walking towards me with these beautiful, beautiful blue eyes, shaved head, and um, I was just so entranced by this person. And I said, the next week I said to my supervisor, Who's the woman that I see every week when I'm leaving? And she said, why do you want to know? I said, I'm just so entranced by her. She's just so, something about her. I said, she said, well, introduce yourself to her. I said, I feel kind of weird. You know, she has cancer and I don't want to bother her. She said, why do you think she has cancer? I said, <laughs> and she said, she's a Buddhist monk. So I was like, oh my God. So the next week when I saw her, I said, I, uh, uh, Ellen said I could introduce myself to you and I liked, my name is, at that time, my name is Robert, and um, I was sexually abused as a child, and uh, I'm an alcoholic and an addict, and, um, I, you know, I've, I've been five years sober now, and I just, I'm feeling suicidal, and I don't know what I'm going to do with the rest of my life, and she said, Robert, you know what you need to do? I said, no, she said, you need to shut up. <laughs> she said, are you listening to yourself? I'm like, yes, and she said, is that happening right now? I said, no, she said, well, how about being just present to this moment? What are you experiencing right now? So can I just pause you for a second here? Because yes. this is a question that comes up a lot. Uh, people write in, you know, and they're like, you know, I'm waking up with, much like you said, in a state of regret, especially around these pandemic times and what people have been through. I'm waking up in a state of despair over choices that I've made or, you know, things that have gone awry. Like, what do I do? Uh, so what would you tell our listeners having... You know, would you just tell them to shut up? Um, would depend. <laughs> <laughs> it would depend on who they are. I would, I would tell them to wake up. You know, real zen. Wake the f up. What is wrong? So, is there is there now a, a more of a formulaic process of wake up? To and and I'm going to have uh, our psychiatrist because I asked my psychiatrist this years ago in New York City. Uh, intrusive thoughts, she said, put them in a pink balloon and let them float away. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm asking uh, for our listeners, is there a way to, and, and changing our thought practice is, mm-hmm. of course, daily, moment by moment, hour by hour, minute by minute mm-hmm. practice. Um, so is there something that people can engage, whether it's first thing in the morning when they wake up or during the day? to catch it and turn it around and put it into a positive affirmation. So, so we usually say, just be with the breath. You know, when, when I mean, because a big part of our practice is, of course, in breath, out breath. So when, for me, for me personally, if I'm getting into a spin, I find myself getting into a spin, is focus out breath. And that out breath is like the interruption for the, the, the crazy thoughts of, so would you recommend like a fast-paced holotropic breath, which is a shorter, more aggressive breath, or would you recommend like I oftentimes during the second half of 
In a yoga fit class that I teach, I have people make their exhalation twice as long as their inhalation to engage the parasympathetic nervous system. So is there a particular breath that you like best to dispel thoughts that we don't want to have? It's simply one breath in, one breath out. So just even and natural. So not actually trying to control it, but just being aware of it. And I think the other part about intrusive thoughts, I would just add is that, you know, the teaching that we have is about just keep the front door and the back door open and don't invite your thoughts for tea, which is so just allowing them to come through and allow them to sweep through and just noticing them. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Thank you. Yeah. Dr. Pugh. Um, as a psychiatrist, now I'm going to ask you this question. Yeah, it's a beautiful question. We do get this a lot from patients and I definitely agree with, uh, breath work. I would say it really depends on the individual, what works best with them, but it's really the strategy, right? Of, of our, our, remembering our mind does respond to our body. And if our body is tense and, and stressed, then our mind is tense and stressed, What I often recommend, though, is really more just the sense of noticing. And I I think this is the front door, back door tea analogy, right? It's it's when we if if people are the problem aren't the thoughts or feelings ever. I tell people we can't control our thoughts or feelings. There's nothing wrong with any thought that we're having, even if we notice that we are obsessing it. But we have a judgment over it, and then the judgment to me sort of makes it stick. And I think it's more important to be curious, right? Just sort of invited. You're not going to focus too much, but but to be curious about why then. I think um, uh, I think it was Koshin, right? Did some Jungian analyst work. I was reading about you, and and I like one of his favorite phrases. I love it's that like until you make it's something like until you make the unconscious conscious, it will dictate your life, and you will call it fate. And I really believe in that. Right. It's it's we so try hard to avoid and get rid of things or fight things or resist. And and I think sometimes not sometimes, always our bodies and minds are are really smart. And if we can just honor and respect them and and value them in a way that we can be observant um, and nonjudgmental, that usually they are teaching us something important and the important parts stay and the rest we get rid of what's not serving us. Uh, I have to say one of my favorite passages in the book Untangled uh, by Koshin is he says, wanting to get your, and I'm just going to say act, but it was another word that's in here, but we we don't like to use uh, bad words in the air. That's not true, but anyway, we won't. Uh, Wanting to get your act together is a powerful, important place to be. It's the beginning of deep inquiry. Inquiry is central to transforming our awareness. I love that. Mm. Um, so tell us a little bit about a little bit more about your practice. Do you guys meditate every day for how long? Um, what does that look like? Well, I used to, as a young person, thought freedom was doing my own thing. But now as I've <laughs> somewhat matured, I realized that discipline is actually the road to freedom. And I used to think that the image of the lone wolf just doing it myself was the way of freedom. And it turns out that lone wolves are sick and we're pack animals and we need each other. And so we can howl together as a pack of lone wolves together. And so for me, that has to do with discipline and realizing doesn't really matter whether you want to do it or not. You just do it. And so I would say primarily I wake up early in the morning and feed our cats and go down to the gym for an hour and then come back up, have some breakfast and sit with our community for half an hour. And so do you, you, do you work within your, like do you have a, job, a, a monk job? Yeah, we do. We, so Chota and I, founded the New York Zen Center for Contemplative Care almost 17 years ago. And so it's a center where here in Manhattan, but also with a global reach. And we do three things. And one is Zen practice. So we do have Zen meditation 
every day and actually 18 times a week. And were you guys located? Because I actually moved uh, from New York City to Florida after the pandemic. I'm a deserter. Um, so where oh. Manhattan? Yeah. I'll see. Okay. Yeah. 23rd, 23rd. Yeah, yeah, I grew up at seventh uh, and fourteenth. So oh, no way. Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, that neighborhood will always be very near and dear to my heart, and and, and literally like embedded in in my the fibers of my being. I, I love New York. I'm just not living there now. Um, but in any event, so you uh, you have people come in. Uh, they have access. Has business picked up during the pandemic? It well, went crazy during the pandemic. We thought, we thought, oh my God, we're gonna. I thought personally, I'm gonna sit home, we're gonna chill, and like maybe do a couple of things on Zoom, relax. <laughs> the whole thing exploded because people wanted connection. They wanted to find a community, and so many, many of them turned to what we're doing here is meditation, teaching meditation, and. I mean, from across the globe, people found us, Australia, the Philippines, South America, South Africa. Um, so suddenly our community exploded and then our, our workshops needed to explode. So the teachings that we did, we now have this incredible uh, program for uh, fellows, uh, our Contemplative Medicine Fellowship, which has just also taken off because during the COVID, during COVID, of course, so many physicians were seeing so many people die and so many deaths that were unaccompanied by uh, family members. So now we're training docs and physicians to get back to or even rediscover or even just discover for the first time the uh, importance of contemplative care, how they can nurture themselves in order to be with their patients better and in, in a new way. And nurturing their both their intrapersonal life inside of themselves, as well as mostly their their basic relationships with family, friends, and many people don't even have friends. And so actually learning actual basic skills of what does it mean to be a friend? Well, that's that's a question we could have like 10 episodes on, so I might have you both back on that. And I do have a relationship question for you, but I'm just going to uh, jump over to Dr. Koo because we had a phone call the other day and we were talking about the role of psilocybin, which is, is a natural mental health strategy and relation to end of death uh, fears and, and challenges and all that. Can you share a little bit about that? Yes, I'm really excited, right, with the the psychedelic movement that's happening, and I think and uh, hoping, right, we we just really do it wisely and, and do it well. Um, but I think psilocybin is 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 a plant medicine has been around for millennium and used for many healing purposes, and we can we can reach altered states in other ways too, right? Breath work, um, meditation. But I think the psilocybin, uh, we are seeing amazing data um, on the use of that for depression, anxiety, but also for end of, of life distress. Um, I finished a death doula certification course recently, and I'm I'm very interested in, in following the FDA approval of psilocybin. And hopefully, I, I think in medicine, it's, it's an area of life that we, we don't do well. In clinical medicine, end of life, um, and and people for the death and dying. I think it's still it's 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 an area that we need so much more help. And I think um, patients, people, individuals, families really are not held in a in a supportive space during that time of life. And and sadly, and, a lot of people, and resources provided resources. to them as well. Yeah. yeah, and people don't even understand that there are actually even more resources out there, right, than, than most people are aware to, to get that support. And so I think psilocybin is going to be huge in, um, in end of life um, and supporting those transitions. And there's studies going on at major universities already for that. And that was really the, one of the first indications in the 1950s that, that the studies showed it to be really exemplary um, in terms of efficacy. So I'm going to open up this question to all three. I love we have three people on the show today. Um, I'll open the question up to all of you. My, one of my favorite mystics, Osho, said that if you can die before you die, you have found liberation, moksha. And I've had that experience in a number of different meditations, also with ayahuasca, and believe it or not, on a ketamine IV, uh, the experience of dying and, and kind of talking myself through that and surrender and um, 
Uh, in your experience, once people have made their peace with the end of life, whether it's via psilocybin trip, whether it's via contemplative medicine, uh, meditation, breath work, do you notice or in your experience, are the people different? Are they acting different now? Do they have less fear? Are they showing up in the world as a different entity once they have made peace with the, the, the final page in the book? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, in our tradition, it's called the great death, and which is actually how we open up our reality. Yeah. And... You know, the historical Buddha, Shakyamuni Buddha, lived around 2,600 years ago. His path of practice was actually also very disciplined. So he was very focused and he tried a lot of different things. I always like to think of it in a very kind of contemporary way where he tried a lot of apps. He went to this center and that center. He tried a little yoga, a little of this, a little of that. And... And then eventually he just said, you know, I have to learn how to be still with my pain. And I write about this also, but it's this, he learned that he was still avoiding fear itself and that he would never be free until he faced the fear of death. And so what, which is, he thought of as the primary fear. And So learning how to sit with that and not turn away was the gateway to freedom. And so in our, in the Zen tradition, we call it the great death, where you actually meet that desire and grasping for permanence. (laughs) We want things to stay. We want our partners to stay. We want our life to stay we want whatever to to be or to not be and to really learn how and i think what he learned through that courage and that fearlessness and just really going forward is that you have to be courageous to not turn away in our life otherwise we'll always be ruled by our fear so I, I spend a lot of time thinking about my own fears in life and how to move with them, through them, over them, under them, around them, all of that. Um, again, do you have a process by which someone can, through natural means, access their impending doom, their fear of death? And uh, is it just embracing it and accepting that it is there? Or is it more of a transformative process that one moves through? I do a lot of work with folks who are dying, um, whether they, you know, it's a year-long uh, diagnosis. I have a, a facilitated group. Usually, it's like eighty percent women who have been given terminal diagnosis, and with people who are acti- actively dying. And the first question I always ask is, "What do you fear most about dying? What do you, what is your greatest fear about dying?" And the response is, you know, the, a vast array of responses, but the, the usual one is, I don't know what's going to happen when I die. What do you think is going to happen? And I say, I don't know. And I think, you know, there is a great, um, I agree there's great work. I agree there's great work being, with being done with psilocybin now. We have a doctor who's, who's working with psilocybin at end of poor end of life patients. Um, there's a long, I think there's a long way to go. We have to be very careful who we're, you know, dis- uh, prescribing it to. Otherwise, it's just going to become this thing where people, no one's going to, no one's going to be safe, uh, facing their death uh, in a, in a um, authentic way, shall we say, if we, if we don't watch the way psilocybin is being used in, in the medical profession. So for me... Can you, can you elaborate on that a little bit? That statement leaves me a little questioning. Oh, me? Yeah. Um, you know, I think we don't want to get it, for me personally, I think, we don't want to get it to a place where anyone who feels like it can engage in psilocybin. You know, it's like, um, I think it's 
to the to the professional up to the to the professional to say, I think this will work for you for X, Y, and Z reason. Um, and because it, I think it's a very uh, powerful gift. That's the right word. Um, gift uh, approach towards death. If someone is really, really suffering, and, and it's all about intention, also, right? About, one, would, one would have to, you know, take take the mushrooms and then have that intention. Uh, I, you know, did some mushrooms recreationally in my twenties, and I got into some pretty uh, uncomfortable emotional places about my father's death and some other things that perhaps I, I didn't necessarily want to go to, wasn't prepared for in that moment. So I can completely relate to, I'm sure Dr. Koo would weigh in on this as well. Um, you know, do not try this, this at home. Like, yeah. Sorry, sorry. I think this is where the, the, the psychiatrist has to step in and teamwork with the doctor to say, okay, this is a perfect candidate. Oh, you know, there's a little, you know, maybe not so much this one, but I think, as I said, I think there's a lot of work to be done here. And which which is also going to create the need for more medical professions to sure. actually take the various treatments, experience them, and then be able to speak for also from their experience. Dr. Ku, would you agree with that? I absolutely agree. I agree with yeah everything that's said. It's a it's a, a powerful gift that we can use, um, but it's there needs to be intention and there needs to be set and setting. It, it you know it needs to be in my opinion embedded in a therapeutic process, right? This isn't just about um, taking some mushrooms, right? It's it's really the intention and using it as a therapeutic modality. And 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 I you know yes, it gives an experiential process, but I think we we're all going to question what's mutative change in the, in that process. And, and I, I may be proven wrong in 10, 20 years. Right. But I, I think it's, it's not the psilocybin itself. Right. I think it's the experience, but more importantly, I think it's the meaning placed on the experience afterward with the depth work that's done, whether it be, you know, uh, with healers, with guides, with therapists. Right. So the psilocybin has been a, a means, right, to uh, alter, right, some neurotransmission, create some neuroplasticity. But I think the the real benefits that come from it are how that experience is processed and the meaning that's placed on it, which is going to be what leads to really the therapeutic change. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And again, in my experience of doing uh, an ayahuasca journey in March and then coming home, realizing some things had been unearthed that I still needed to deal with. And I didn't make much time for my own personal integration because I had to get back to work. Um you know, that led me to then doing ketamine. And then that's probably going to lead me to do a assisted psilocybin mushroom therapy, or maybe if I'm lucky when I'm at the MAPS conference, you know, assisted MDMA therapy. So uh, for me, one rabbit hole leads to another, but, you know, I, I'm on a path to healing and transformation. Uh, and I believe uh, just for me personally, it's a lifelong process um, and speaking of lifelong processes, uh, you two gentlemen are not only business partners, but life partners. Is that correct? True. And we have the bling. Oh, nice. So you are married. Yes. So you, did you all meet uh, in, in the uh, monk club? <laughs> we, 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 kind of, we pretty much did. We, were, we saw each other across a room during... Oh, so crowded. <laughs> In the in the Zen Center, actually, twenty eight years ago, wow. but at night we both had a very strong feeling, but we didn't see each other again for six years. So, oh wow! Yeah. And so then we met again twenty two years ago and have been together ever since. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's beautiful. <laughs> uh, so so yeah, so you guys work together. I always admire couples who can work together and and be life partners. And I think it takes, I mean, to me, that's the ultimate to to be working on a higher purpose with your life partner. I think that's beautiful. Um, It's the practice that helps us to do that. Yeah. We have a joint practice of meditation and seeing each other and not holding back. What's up right now? Facing fear. Facing the fear. You're going to leave me. No, no. What's the story you're telling yourself right now? You're going to leave me. You're going to abandon me. Uh, no, so, yeah, I, I remember reading that in the book. Uh, I can I can relate to all of that. So, 
Uh, would you give some advice to our single listeners on uh, if they're not a member of the Monk Club, where <laughs> where they should if they're looking for uh, much like much like I'm looking for a spiritual partner, you know where where should you go to find that person? Because I I don't think it's Tinder. Well, I think you know it's really important to participate in activity in society and. You know, there was a new study out that, you know, 35% of people don't report not even having one friend. And so the loneliness is, is actually much worse than we could have ever imagined. And, you know, there's, you know, the people from uh, Soul Cycle have started a thing where they actually, you can book a seat in a circle to actually talk to people now. And uh, so I think that what I would recommend is how do you extend beyond your discomfort and learn how to make some friends? And so that people who, like one of our friends, Tarana Lodog, who's actually the medical director of our fellowship, you know, she talks about, um, she still uses a prescription pad because she's old school and she writes, you know, find your five. So she feels that all of us need to find five people who will show up for us no matter what. And that many of us don't have anyone. And to really, you know, instead of being ashamed about that, can we just say, wow, I need to learn. And wow, I, I want to extend out because I want to learn what it means to connect. And you don't want to go to the hardware store for, for oranges. You know, it's like if you want to be in a in a spiritual relationship, then go to a spiritual community. Don't hang out in the in the local bar, right? you know, the hardest club in town, but find a community. As a yoga person, you probably have this already, but to find another a number of two or three spaces. You know, we've got a lot of listeners that write in and, and friends that I've met on plant medicine journeys and and uh people from various business organizations, single chats and all of that. And I see that question coming up a lot. So I just thought I would ask them on yeah. behalf of some of yeah. my friends. <laughs> it's tough. And Take I think people, people need to realize that relationships are an investment, right? I mean, I think our world has gotten so fast paced. We expect things quick and uh, then there's like the apps and the meets and whatever. And, and really, you know, friendships, it's an investment over time and energy and, and, we we need to have more of a sense of community and commitment for that um, because you don't have those five people that show up for you if you haven't also, you know, I think over time invested in them and there there is a give and take and a commitment in that. I'd like to invite uh, our Zen friends to come to one of Yoga Fit's Mind Body Fitness Conferences so to have a beautiful community of people from all over the world. We're actually... Uh, I'm working a lot in Japan right now, bringing yoga fit into the healthcare system there. One of my colleagues from Harvard has three hospitals and two wellness hotels, and he's opening up a diagnostic wellness hotel in early 2024. We'll have a yoga fit studio in there. Uh, but it's wonderful to see the Japanese culture embrace yoga, mindfulness, meditation, breathing exercises, all within, you know, what is more of a Western medicine setting called a hospital. In fact, um, my business partner, there's uncle who is the chief of orthopedic surgery, even took our menopause, our yoga fit menopause training. Let, let your doctor friend know that we actually lectured twice in Japan on exactly the, this topic. And we'll be going in probably later this year or early next year. So uh, as you said, bring in a Western approach, a Zen approach to to the work in the hospitals in, in Tokyo and Kyoto we were. So it's very, very exciting what's happening in, in Japan. Yeah. Um, I, I think that they're very forward in their thinking. I, I know my my business partner there is a, an incredible visionary, but also it's nice to see that certain so-called Eastern cultures are really embracing what was originally theirs and they started. Exactly. That's so interesting. You know, much like people of India embracing yoga, and, and not everybody does. Right. Um, so how about some tips for our listeners uh, based upon your the three of you, your various practices on natural, you know, what a day in the mental, a, a day of good mental health looks like to you. Let's go to the doctor. 
Oh, that's a great question. Well, it certainly is a day of balance is the first thing I'd say, right? I think that's really important. Uh, I think we look at circadian rhythms a lot in health. So sort of getting up and having the sunlight, we know melatonin is a big factor in that. So I think as already been mentioned, I mean, uh, discipline is a big part of a healthy day. And so that we have usually a bedtime, we've ensured a good night's sleep, we've woken up. Uh, I think a sense of purpose and meaning. So the start of every day, a uh, healthy day is going to include uh, a sense of purpose and meaning. And maybe the last thing I would add is that that people are right going about their day with self-compassion and, like I say, curiosity and self-awareness and then asking for help when they need it. Um, if I see people, um, probably most often than not, the one thing I can say is we don't do enough uh, self-care and then, and then reaching out to others. And so to me, that would be a healthy day. It's not always going to be a happy day right? It's not always going to be a great day. We're not always going to feel great, but that's not the same as a healthy day because we can have a day that's very painful that can also be very healthy. It's I, Yeah, 100% agree with you. Last summer, I went through a pretty bad depression, and but I still went to the gym every day. Yeah. You know, and I, you know, you tell yourself if you're taking care of your body and you're struggling with your mental health, at least you have your health, at least you have your physical health, because the minute that goes, your focus is going to be 100% on that. So dear listeners, take care of your body because it's the home for your soul and your mind, even if it may be a distracted, sometimes crazy, all over the place, uh, depressed mind, uh, your body is the, is the home to it. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Oh, I want you to talk about it. for me. Firstly, the body never lies, so we have to listen to our body. What is it I'm going through today? And for me, as a person with chronic depression, it's like it really helps. And where where is this coming from right now? And where in my body do I feel this? And I can get a lot of information just by being curious about my body, my emotional body, my physical body. So for me, listening to my body is really, really important. Thank you. Thank you. Anything you'd like to add? Yeah, we have one shot in this life. As far as we know, for sure, no clear reports back. Very varied reports back. But uh, <laughs> so the opportunity for a day to be full and engaged. And to me, a life, a good day is a day where I didn't hold back and hesitate from what matters most reaching out and making sure we care for this world, our neighborhood, our neighbors, the, our family. And what matters most. So it's just, it's a precious opportunity. We have so little time actually. And that's also the great news. Like there's an urgency and don't wait. Yeah, if you can make someone's day brighter, and bring some positive energy and make a positive contribution to society in some way, shape, or form, or your community, uh, that will not only increase your happiness scores exponentially, but will also enable you to say today was a good day. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. Thank you both so much. Um, And as we move uh, towards the close of the show, Dr. Ku, I'm curious, uh, do you send your, someone comes in and, you know, I will use myself once again as an example. I was living in the South Bay where I believe you have your practice. I was in my mid-late 20s. I was very situationally depressed about a relationship. Uh, I contemplated going down to my garage and turning the engine on the car. And I thought, hi, I probably should not be having these thoughts. And I went to a psychiatrist in Manhattan Beach, California. Uh, and she prescribed me Prozac mm-hmm. and I was, uh, I, I filled it and I hung on to it. And I can tell you, I was driving by that Starbucks. I think it's on Pacific coast highway and you know, whatever that main artery is into Hermosa beach there. I forget because it's been a while since I've been there. Uh, I remember sticking the first 20 milligram pill in my mouth in the car. And I was crying because I thought I practice yoga. I meditate like, I don't know why I should take this pill, but I'm going to take it. And I did. 
Yeah. Well, good for you. I'm glad you did. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So unfortunately I had enough awareness to know that my thoughts perhaps were not serving me in that moment. Um, so when you have clients so, so, such as I, you know, was uh, 20 years ago or, or whatever, uh, come in, do, are you also looking at, you know, what their exercise habits are like, what their food intake is like? Are they drinking too much? Are they on too many stimulants? Uh, are you doing a full comprehensive approach as a psychiatrist? Absolutely. All those things are crucial to know because you really can't um, get to the proper diagnostic, right, evaluation without knowing the whole person and how they're they're spending their their days, right? And that is what guides treatment. Um, and it's back to sort of what you were mentioning at the beginning of the episode, how are we born? And we do know that, right, you know, illnesses such as depression and anxiety have a genetic component. Right. And they have a, a severity and but there's also it's it's also well known like how, when it rears its ugly head, uh, there's usually meaning in that. Right. And so, you know, I might have a genetic propensity to depression, but why I get depressed when I do uh, is clearly due to um, a combination of factors. And unless we're dealing with all of those, right, then we can't get the person completely better. Medicines serve a place, right? Um, some people, they help a lot. We know for the vast majority of people, they're, they're not the best solution. Large studies that show, you know, maybe three out of 10 people can really be in remission with medications. And so even looking at that, we know it's crucial. But um, especially at Neuro Wellness Spa, when people come in for uh, transcranial magnetic stimulation, we also have a very robust six-week clinical initiative that goes along with that. And we talk about spirituality, community engagement, nutrition, sleep hygiene, exercise. And um, and we see great results. And I, I think a big part of it is because we are helping people, right? We're, we're treating a biological illness that, that's there, but but they won't maintain their response unless we can uh, sort of have them be healthy in all aspects of their life. So um, do you find that if someone is just prescribed a pill without doing the rest of the wheel of health, uh, they are just putting themselves actually at a deficit because they're not going to do perhaps the deeper work to shift, if, if one can shift it, the, the problem at its root cause? I will be the first to say I'm very therapy biased and analyst biased. And so I, I, I do believe in that. I don't think it's a detriment to take the medication. Um, it's, it's, interesting his history behind this because, you know, psychoanalysis was in its heyday when we first had uh, the innovation of medications. And there was a, a lot of fear at the time that medications would inhibit the work that happens. And, and what they showed actually in data showed is that being on a medication and, and sometimes lightening the load of the depression or anxiety actually allowed patients to do deeper and more, you know, curative work. That being said, I think that that is a deeper curative work. So, I think so I'm going to stop you just here for a second. Wasn't MDMA originally designed to help mental health professionals such as yourself guide the patient through their trauma and experience it without the attachment to it? I'm probably not stating this in, in its correct, 100% correct background, but can you fill our listeners in? Yeah, so MDMA is it is actually an amphetamine, right? Um, as well as a psychedelic. And I don't, that's a really good question. I I I may be wrong. I don't know that it was developed specifically for physicians um in terms of their use. The when the, you know, current use of MDMA also in the studies is really the the providers are not um partaking right in the MDMA it's for the patient that being said right many many guides um and i think many and and the monks might know this better than I in terms of shamanic rituals, often the guides would take, right, very lower doses of the plant medicine um, at the same time, right, in terms of having a little bit of a sense of connection or being in the same space. So I do know that that's the, the case there. Right. Um, thank you for that. So, uh, Koshin and Chodo, thank you so much mm -hmm. for coming on. I know you both got to run. Uh, where can our listeners find you? Uh, can they do virtual sessions with you? And where uh, I know you're in Chelsea. Uh, so, so if you're in Manhattan, stop by their center. Yeah. Tell us where we can find you. 
Yeah, so our website is zencare.org, and you can also find us on Instagram at New York Zen Center in Koshin. Paley Ellison and Robert Chodo Campbell on Instagram, as well as our foundations in contemplative care training, which is for anybody who wants to bring their values and their actions together. It's a nine month training, and that is also available virtually as well as in person. So it's a hybrid program. And also our contemplative medicine fellowship is for physicians and nurse practitioners and physician assistants. And that cohort begins each July. That sounds amazing. Cool that uh, is on zencare.org. Zencare.org. And also check out Koshin Paley Ellison's book, Untangled, Walking the Eightfold Path to Clarity, Courage, and Compassion. Thank you both so much. Namaste. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. We've got about um, three, four more minutes. So um Anything else along uh, the intersections of, of natural and other mental health cures? I'm just so excited. I mean, thank you for doing shows like this. It gets the word out there. I do feel excited about uh, the movements that we're having. I think COVID, uh, as was referenced, has made people so much more aware of mental health, the, the importance of it. And I think that that I'm seeing a move for us really being much more collaborative and integrative. And so I think at least on the Western medicine, there are really four right thinkers that are really trying, right, to integrate more holistic care. And, and it's it's a uphill battle, right, with all the new technology and precision medicine. But I'm hopeful. And I, I think that we're going to see more and more inter- intersection between what we would consider, right, natural treatments um, embodied, hopefully, in a, in a Western medicine um, fashion. We don't have, you know, we know this, we don't have enough providers. And we certainly know that we don't do well by the vast majority of patients in mental health. So we need to be looking elsewhere and we need to be adding services and we need to to figure that out. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, you know, even places that are a little bit more alternative in their offerings are, are not really feeling like they're embodying the body, mind and spirit yes. in those practices. Uh, so I think we, we, you know, my vision is for some new centers uh, to, to open up where, where a variety of treatments can all be under one roof. Uh, we would like to thank this, the sponsor for this show, Yoga Fit Training Systems Worldwide, the leader in yoga, mind, body, fitness education. You can visit YogaFit at yogafit.com, offering virtual and live, virtual and live trainings, workshops, conferences. There are two conferences coming up this year uh, in at the end of May, Minnesota. And also in July in Scottsdale, Arizona. So you can save 15% at checkout by using the code VOICE23. You can also visit me online at bethshaw.com. On Instagram at bethshawhealth. My books are available anywhere books are sold. And um, thank you so much for listening. I hope that your mental health was improved by listening to this show. Please share it and improve somebody else's mental health. Lots of good strategies today and different ways to think and be. Until next time, everyone, stay healthy, stay happy, stay peaceful. Namaste. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on Make America Healthy. We hope we've given you some tools you need to take back control of your health. Until next time, we wish you a healthy and wonderful week.